And welcome to the 300th episode of Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. And for listening to us for presumably the last 300 episodes. Yes, almost six years. Yes. That's wild. It's a lot. Yeah. We're and, still trucking along. And we just made it to 1960. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're averaging a decade for every year that we do this. I mean, that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> um, how are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right. I'm pretty excited for tonight's movie. Yeah, I am so excited for you to see this. Yeah, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. My life has ups and downs, <laughs> but I'm excited to watch this movie with you. Through the roller coaster that is life, there will always be Scream Scene and Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> yes, uh, Sarah and I have been playing a lot of Baldur's Gate 3, a game that I've been looking forward to for many, many years uh, and was super excited about. And then Sarah has now adopted as her own. <laughs> yeah, though I call it Baldur's Date. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but let's dive into the episode. What are we watching? So I'm really glad that episode 300, because like we do the show in chronological order. So we can't really control like what movies we watch for like milestone kind of episodes. You just got to hope that fate is going to present you with a good matchup. And I'm very happy that Today's film uh, for episode 300 is Jigoku from 1960, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. Well, this is, this is a big deal movie if you are a fan of Japanese horror. If you're a fan of Japanese horror, you know this movie. Um, it's a Criterion Collection movie for mm -hmm. those of us in the West who are film snobs. Um, <laughs> so Jigoku means hell. Uh, and this is the final film we'll be seeing for the podcast from director Nobuo Nakagawa. Oh, really? Yeah, we've seen many films from him, most notably Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden. Um, this is also the final film we'll be seeing from the Japanese studio Shintoho, period. Oh, the movie was so good. <laughs> it exploded the studio. Uh, it sounds like the opposite. So... The tale of Jigoku, this film, begins one day as Nobuo Nakagawa and writer Ichiro Miyagawa sat around at the studio uh, basically debating the philosophy of sin. So if two people are adrift in the ocean, certain to drown, and there is a plank of wood only large enough for one of them to float on, has the survivor who takes the plank committed murder by consigning his fellow man to death? No. So this question like went back and forth between the two men for a while. What they agreed on was no, but it's like murder. 
and they, they sort of started brainstorming and they came to the conclusion that there are many selfish acts that are not technically crimes, but could be considered sins in some way or another. And that surely this is what hell is for, for this kind of like cosmic justice for the wrongs that you commit that, you know, mortal man's laws are not going to punish you for. And about that time, their boss, producer Mitsugu Okura, walked into the room, basically told them that they needed to have a new horror movie out the door by summer of 1960, and what have you come up with? Miyagawa replied that they had an idea for a movie that would be about selfish people and the punishment they face. And the title of the movie would be Heaven and Hell. Uh, which I have to sidebar for a moment to note is uh, actually the Japanese title, um, Tengoku to Jigoku, of um, like a 1963 Akira Kurosawa film noir movie. Um, But that film's title in English typically gets rendered as High and Low. Yeah, also a good movie. When Nakagawa and Miyagawa had completed the script, they handed it in to Okura and he read it and he remarked, Heaven is nowhere to be seen in this script. To which Miyagawa replied, we left heaven for the sequel. Sure. So before we dive in more on the rest of Jigoku, if you aren't familiar with this movie, unlike High and Low, the title is not metaphorical. We are going to hell in this movie. So I thought it was maybe a good idea if uh, we learned a little bit about what that means in Japan, because I think sometimes it can be a shock to Westerners that like religions other than Christianity have concepts of hell. I don't know about that, but what I was particularly interested in comparing is I know that the Christian conception of hell is very much influenced by Dante's Inferno. Yes. So I was like, well, what will the Japanese version kind of look like? Um, before I go further, let me just clarify for folks that Jigoku is the Japanese name for Buddhist hell. Mm. So we're talking about Buddhism, we're not talking about Shintoism, Mm -hmm. anything else. It's Buddhism that we're talking about today. If you aren't aware of what Buddhism is, basically reincarnation and karma are big factors and it's a religion that nowadays is like around the world, um, but... Uh, you could kind of say it's centralized in its history in Eastern Asia uh, with major influences coming from India and China. That's my one word summary of Buddhism. If you're still confused, Google. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big topic. Yeah. We're not the religion podcast, right? So yeah, go over to Apocrypals and be like, Hey, what's Buddhism? Um, they, they'll also tell you that that's outside the scope of their podcast, <laughs> but. So Buddhism is huge. Its major influences are in India and China. So what does Japanese Buddhism kind of look like? Well, for Japan, it's really notable Buddhist scholar. Uh, can be traced all the way back to like the 10th century. And it's this monk named Genshin. He was born Ishin Soju. And he was like the most influential 
scholar monk in like the 10th and 11th centuries. Okay, so this is like our St. Augustine kind of guy. Yeah. So he wrote many, many treatises and um, really popularized, uh, a gr- he didn't originate it, but he popularized the growing strain of Buddhism called Pure Land Buddhism. Okay. And what that means is that be a good person and you'll be reborn in a pure land. They mean that as in like a, you're pure by Buddhist uh, Buddhist standards mm. in terms of like morality. You're going to get reborn into like the plight into like the platonic ideal universe. Yeah. Mm. He wrote his magnum opus in around 985 uh, and it's titled Ojoyoshu, which translates to uh, essentials of birth in the pure land. Basically your how to guide to get to the pure land. It had three volumes uh, and was on everything from like, what is hell? What are the different realms of hell? Why the pure land is great. Uh, the Buddhist tenets to follow to achieve getting into the pure land and um, very specifics like how to guides of like what prayers to do and when. Okay. So this is very like, our Japanese divine comedy, but it's like a how-to guide instead of a narrative. Yeah. Mm. As well as it being like a how-to guide and being prose, uh, there were also illustrations, particularly of hell, showing Oni torturing people by like poking them with iron and like boiling them in oil and pouring that oil down their butts and lots of, lots of things like that. Kind of what you can... Uh, expect yeah interesting how like yeah that's hell like (laughs) we're over here in japan in the 10th century absolutely no connection to like medieval europe but like the idea of like well what does a a realm where you're just tortured for your sins look like and it's like demons pouring oil up your butt like same kind of stuff you know yeah well no culture was like damn i like that oil up my butt (laughs) you know especially if it's boiling right we are animals who prefer particular like temperature and Mm -hmm. stuff so like if it's like too hot it's like that's a bad time right (laughs) of course hell is going to be a bad time right ergo um so as i said he wrote this around 985 and to kind of give an idea of how much this proliferated um there is a reproduction of it from 1790 in Japan that you can look up online at the metmuseum.org so you can see some of the illustrations there. It's all done in red at least this reproduction cuz I don't have the original. Sure. Um it's all done in red and black ink using negative space as well and as I said oni torturing using cauldrons um people like being forced to drink their own blood, like all of that. But it is graphic in that sense. Mm. Another really big depiction of Jigoku uh, comes a little bit later in uh, something that's called the Hand Scrolls of Hell, Mm. otherwise known as Jigoku Zoshi. It is a 12th century illustrated scroll that specifically highlights the eight great hells and great as in like terrible and not like, Ooh, I want to go there. Yeah. Great as in not lesser hells. Yeah. Uh, these you can see online at the Nara national museum. Uh, they are called the tales of the Buddhist hells. Now to be fair, the 
Jigoku Zoshi that we have is like just like one bit of it. It there was a lot more, so we don't get to see all of the scenes of hell, but what we do see include um the realms or layers, if you will, of hell where it's like, here's the layer of excrement where you just get to be in shit. Uh here's the layer of the iron mill where iron is everywhere and you get branded with it all the time. It also shows uh, the realm, uh, which is kind of like the worst part place, uh, where it's like hot sand from black clouds is kind of the translation, where it's just like an oven and it's fucking hot. Okay. Now, these scrolls use uh, dark blue, black, and red ink to show darkness, red for blood and flames, um... I just think it's interesting that it's using like a dark blue as well as black to kind of show some differentiation there. But I'm sure like an art history person would be able to be like, here's like further information about why that's also interesting. So that's kind of like the depictions of hell that would be very influential for how Nakagawa would probably want to depict hell. But let me tell you about Jigoku itself. So Jigoku is like... The overarching word, but as I kind of insinuated before, there's different like layers or realms. Layers isn't quite exact, but you know, different uh like areas to sure. go to in the map of Jigoku. I feel like layers is like a easy westernization to grasp because like Dante's ca- Inferno. Yeah, exactly. The overlord of hell is Mao who is uh, a guy who just basically judges where the soul goes. He's an overlord in the sense that he is like a bureaucratic figure. That tracks. I don't like, this is all new information. I don't know a lot about Japanese hell. What I do know is that Chinese afterlives are like super bureaucratic. It's like a lot of paperwork. Yeah. So even in Japan, MO is depicted as having a Chinese bureaucrat's hat. Hmm. We could go into why that imagery is in Japan. Colonialism. Colonialism, imperialism, back and forth, blah, blah, blah. That's not the scope of this podcast. Fans of Dragon Ball Z will remember like the times that Goku has died and gone to the afterlife. And there's that dude at the desk who like tells him which afterlife to go to. So M.O. has two disembodied heads on either side of him that are on pillars. Uh, One can perceive the soul's inner sins um so like when you thought bad things sure uh and then the other one does uh looking at your actions so when you actually did the bad things or did good things you know uh and it's not necessarily like this guy saying like yeah you're going to the worst place um mo can also say like hey you get to just be reincarnated you've been fine you get to go um or you could go up to heaven which uh, heaven in and of itself has five realms uh, versus the, uh, we'll put 16 with an asterisk. Um, There are many areas in hell. Mm. As I said, there are many layers, but, um, and many realms, but I'll just kind of cover the the top 16. Okay, sure. (laughs) So we got eight lesser hells, uh, which are called the cold hells. They roughly translate to the blister realm where it's so cold you blister okay uh the burst blister (laughs) realm where it's so cold your blisters burst uh the shivering realm 
are like you're constantly going like yeah yeah um the lamentable place where you're just like lamenting like oh god it's so cold (laughs) the chatter realm where your teeth are chattering the blue realm where it's so cold you turn blue the uh cracking skin realm where it's so cold your skin cracks and then the shattering realm where your skin is so cold it shatters so (laughs) i think like obviously shatter realm is the worst one but i think ignoring the one where you get so cold that you shatter burst blisters and skin cracking both sound really bad yeah but those are just the lesser hells right let's go to the great hells uh these ones are hot so i have the japanese names for these ones, because I think they are the ones that are going to be featured in today's movie. Uh, first, we have the Tokatsu Jinkoku, which is uh, like an iron-focused place. This could be like the iron mill uh, that was mentioned in the earlier scroll, where the ground is made of iron, so it, it's hot to walk on. You get poked and branded with hot iron. Um, and then you have Kokujo Jigoku, uh, which is like roughly translates to black thread so basically you get um marked with black rope or black thread and then along there is where the oni will cut you up oh (laughs) which is very like uh visually interesting to me shugo jigoku which is the crushing realm uh where rocks fall from the sky and crush you rocks fall everybody dies or Uh, i guess in this case everybody dies rocks fall Yes. And if you die in any of these areas, like you wake back up, like you right. never actually die, die, right. you know, Kyokan Jigoku, which is <laughs> the screaming realm where um, you just get like blazed with heat uh, inside and out, full fire, full roasting. Dai Kyokan uh, Jigoku, which is the great screaming. Mm hmm. Where I think if you were a particularly vain person, you go here because your skin gets eaten. Mm. Junetsu Jigoku, where you kind of like, you ate some really bad Chipotle, oh. but it, it won't leave, you know? Mm. Uh, Dai Junetsu, which is the great heat realm, uh, where it's that, but now you also get poked with uh, hot pokers mm. and tridents. And it was like specifically people calling out tridents in, in that imagery as well, okay. which was interesting because we always think of like Western devils as having tridents. Right. Uh, and then the Mugen Jigoku, which is like the never ending heat mm. where it's an oven and it fucking sucks. Now, I ended on like the worst layer. Right. So I went from like least bad to worse. Yeah. And time moves differently in hell. And heaven, you aren't here for all eternity. You're just here for a really long time because you're waiting for that bureaucratic process. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, one day in hell is about 100 years on Earth. Okay. So you're going to be there for a long time. You can get shifted to different Jigoku realms based on uh, the living praying for you hmm. uh particularly if it's on an anniversary or a holiday and this is basically like pushing for an appeal sure you'd be like no ben was actually really good though mm-hmm. and then mo going like yeah i guess so i guess he can go to like 
the blistering cold rather than the oven hot. Sure. Very similar to like Catholics praying for souls in purgatory to get them to heaven faster. Yeah. So whether you would go to one of the greater hells or the lesser hells would really depend on like how you lived your life and particularly how dedicated to Buddhist ideals you were. So for example, someone who killed a parent uh, would go to the worst place versus someone who killed a mosquito who would go to not as bad of a place. Right. And you're like trying to kind of pay off your karma is kind of the idea, right? Like if you have a surplus of bad karma when you die, you have to like suffer through all the bad karma that you accumulated until your, your, your kind of like ledger yeah. is, is uh, balanced. A bit. And then every so often you get an appeal for good behavior. Right. Right. And then like <laughs> once it's balanced out, that's when you can get reincarnated or something, right? Potentially. Mm. You, you might just be in hell for a billion years. But you get out eventually. Eventually. It's not yeah, eternal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's Jigoku. Cool. Uh, yeah, I didn't really know most of that. Um, so that's really cool. It's really interesting to compare to like Western sort of Catholic pop culture hell. Mm-hmm. So back to the movie and to kind of back things up a bit, Nobuo Nakagawa. So we've talked about him in a few different episodes in the past. Um, but since this is kind of his like mm, masterpiece, I guess, and kind of the like culmination of his career, I thought I'd kind of talk about him a little bit more. Um, he was born in 1905 in Kyoto. He grew up reading left-wing proletarian literature and he wrote film reviews when he was a young man for Kinema Jumpo magazine. He joined Makiko Studios as an apprentice in 1929. He directed his first feature film, uh, which was like a Chanbara film, like a period sword fighting film in 1934. And he worked at Toho until labor disputes resulted in the creation of Shin Toho in 1947, which is where like Nakagawa then moved to. Shin Toho began with like prestige pictures. Like it was very much like we're the new Toho. We're the good guys. Um, like Akira Kurosawa's Stray Dogs, uh, for instance. But by the mid-50s, the studio was struggling. Um, the big studios, Toho, uh, Daie, Toei, were struggling as well, but they were kind of starting from a position of strength rather than being like brand new when TV hit and started to eat into the Japanese film market. So producer Mitsugu Okura uh, shifted the studio to making crowd-pleasing B-pictures. So these would be like, they had a series of space opera movies. They had superhero movies, uh, war movies. um, Also like, uh, how to describe these? I guess sex comedies is maybe the most apt description. Because I I could call them, they're, they're often called like nudies. But I feel like in a modern perspective, that doesn't get across what these movies were. Like, Shintoho wasn't putting out by today's standards pornography, but it would be like movies about like the secretarial pool at the office and various situations that are going to get you to see them in their underwear kind of mm, stuff. Okay. Like those sorts of movies. Bunchy um, sex comedies. Yeah. And of course, horror pictures. So Nakagawa kind of found his calling as the father of Japanese horror really, 
with a series of horror pictures through the 1950s. These are generally considered to have begun with Vampire Moth in 1956, which we actually didn't consider horror. It went on our miscellaneous list. Uh, then there was Ghost of Kasane Swamp in 1957, which we ranked at 87 on the list, or at least it sits at 87 currently on the list. Then came Black Cat Mansion in 1958, which sits at 64 on the list. Lady Vampire in 1959, which we ranked at 109. And then finally, Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden, Ghost Story of Yatsuya in Tokaido in 1959, which is currently ranked at number 12 on the list. Yeah, it's a really good movie. It's a really good adaptation of a very famous ghost story. Yeah, very well done. Yeah, it's definitely our favorite version so far of this like oft filmed classic ghost story. I think the critical consensus is that it's still typically considered to be the best film version, uh, but there are many Yatsia Kaidens to come in our future still. Or he was going to get her man. <laughs> With Jigoku, Nakagawa decided to kind of indulge his ambitions to do something truly different. He wanted to make a horror movie that was not like anything anyone had ever made before. And I think we've kind of seen this progression of ambition in his movies up till now, like with Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden being in widescreen and being in color and being like -hmm. everything that it was and kind of having this like expansion into more um, abstract imagery. Yeah. But what's neat with that is it's a tried and true story. It's a crowd pleaser. It has been for centuries. Like it's still, it's like pushing the boundaries with still a safety net. Yeah, it's a good story to experiment with because everybody knows the basics, Yeah, right? Um, so with Jigoku, he decided to go kind of all in on like a psychological horror story that would get to the heart of like what is sin and what is guilt, um, but that would also unleash fully accurate renditions of Buddhist hell. Beauty. He wanted, you know, to really take those, that art in those scrolls and like, bring it to life. Um, He wanted to extend beyond, you know, his past efforts and push the imagery and, you know, really make a film that would have something to say psychologically and philosophically. Unfortunately, this was Shintoho. And so the budget for Jigoku was very low, which inspired production designer Haruyusu Kurosawa to get creative, um, basically using minimalism. Hmm. What they did was they got the largest soundstage in Japan. They draped it in black uh, so that it was just this black void. Then they filled it with dirt. uh, And then they decorated it with colored lights and a fog machine. Very last season of Star Trek. Yeah. But they did this to emulate the negative space and like black and red inks from those scroll illustrations. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can already see how this is going to translate very interestingly. So midway through production came the news that Shintoho was bankrupt and that uh, Jigoku would be the studio's final production. Okay. Nakagawa would invest his own money to finish the movie his way. Like there was money in the budget to like finish the movie, but it was like, but you can't do anything cool. 
now yeah. that we're bankrupt. And it was like, yeah, just well, finish it, get it out, whatever. Yeah. So he put his own money into it to get his vision on film. And basically by the end of production, like extras, the cast, everyone was pitching in with the crew to like help build or take down sets or do all of these things um, before everyone was let go. Mm -hmm. The film stars Shiguru Amachi as the lead character, Shiro. Um, Amachi had previously played the vampire in Lady Vampire, and he was also Yemen in Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden. So... We've seen him as the lead in the past two Nakagawa films, and he is still the lead here. His co-star is Yoichi Numata, who plays the character Tamura, and he would actually return to the horror genre 40 years later in The Ring and The Ring 2 oh, in wow. Japan. Yeah. Meanwhile, actress Yutako Mitsura would have been best known to audiences of the time for her role in Shintoho's Supergiant, a superhero movie serial for children she was like supergiant's girlfriend i think finally actor kanjuro arashi famous for playing the sword fighting action hero kuruma tengu in the kuruma tengu film series from 1927 to 1956 wow appears in an uncredited cameo as lord enma king of hell so this is sort of like if i don't know like Sean Connery or Roger Moore like showed up as the devil in a movie in like the 90s in a cameo. Didn't Sean Connery do that? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. So Jigoku was released in Japan on July 30th, 1960, and for years it was extremely difficult to see in North America despite its influential reputation. Uh, for a very long time, like what Western critics knew about it was that like it was hugely influential on Japanese horror going forward and that it had this good reputation. But like if you wanted to see it, it was kind of like find someone who has a print mm. of it. Um, it didn't really get like an official English release. Is it because it's weird? Um, yeah, it also is gory to an extent that was not okay in the u.s or really the rest of the world at this time fascinating um, what was gore like in the samurai movies at this point because i don't think they've so, gotten to the point where it's like blood splurty no right? so the the famous japanese like high pressure blood spurts in sword fighting movies comes from sanjuro which is the sequel to yojimbo and from a like squib for blood where the pressure on it was like way higher than it was supposed to be and yeah. it was this total accident that everyone was like wait but that looks super cool though and that was like later in the 60s yes. right uh so that's like 62 or 63 mm. so yeah we don't have very high gore in the samurai movies yet at all okay cool um and what's interesting is like there's a filmmaker who we're gonna encounter on the podcast later uh who is generally considered to be like the pioneer of gory movies and then when Western critics actually got to see Jigoku finally after hearing about it for a long time, it was like, oh, this was doing this way before that. Shintoho's bankruptcy meant that the film was very under-promoted on release, but it did eventually find its audience. Um, it made money. It was not a flop. It just, the success didn't matter. Yeah. Because the studio was already dead. As I said, the film found an audience. It made money, but it did divide people this was a very divisive movie upon release and that divide was kind of strictly on generational lines that makes sense 
So older viewers rejected Jigoku, um, and this would you know include people in the establishment, the establishment movie critics, those sorts of people. Um, the film was criticized for its intense gore and for its nihilistic themes, as well as its like cheap appearance. Younger viewers, meanwhile, embraced Jigoku for its experimental style, uh, its boundary-pushing imagery, and its nihilistic themes. So what kind of happened was young people really liked Jigoku. So as the 1960s horror fans who liked it and Nakagawa's other films grew up, they became the filmmakers who ushered in the 1990s J-horror kind of renaissance. Mm -hmm. And so Jigoku was like explicitly homaged in a ton of 1990s horror films from Japan as these filmmakers came of age. Uh, films like The Ring, uh, Pulse, um, Ichi the Killer, these kinds of filmmakers. Um, there's even a 1999 remake of Jigoku from uh, Teruo Oshii, who is considered to be like the gore torture porn guy in Japan. Yeah. Um, the film's reputation in the West was finally cemented in 2006 when it was entered into the Criterion Collection. And now that it's much easier for people to see um, its status as kind of an influential classic of J-horror, as well as this early pioneer of gore effects, is kind of undisputed. Unfortunately, Nakagawa did not live to see this reappreciation of the film. The end of Shintoho and the initial mixed response to Jigoku meant that despite its ambition to be more than just a horror film, it did not propel Nakagawa to the internationally recognized auteur status that he was looking for. Yeah, he wanted to reach Kurosawa. Yes. And, you know, he was seeing guys like Kurosawa and those contemporaries of Japanese cinema really getting that, like, art house fame in the U.S. through things like Yana's films and stuff at this time. And he's like sitting there going like, I'm inventing the entire genre of Japanese horror over here all by my lonesome. <laughs> like, can we? Hi. Um, so it didn't really happen for him, unfortunately. And with his studio going bankrupt and all of these problems, he kept working, um, but he would eventually have to shift to television to keep up and to keep employed. Um, on television, he did make a series of like TV movie Kaiden pictures. Like his last film in 1982 is a ghost story TV movie. Um, but then he passed away in 1984. So kind of like a decade before this 1990s renaissance of Jigoku and mm. Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden and his other films. So based on that, you can probably guess where you can see Jigoku if you want to watch along. Uh, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection, and it is streaming on the Criterion channel. And probably also available either at your library or through Canopy, because uh, they often have a lot of Criterion titles. Yes. So this might be one that is a little harder to find than like the big Criterion titles, but, you know, yeah, take a look. Check it out. Uh, if you have a library card... Support your local library. Well, folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Jigoku from 1960, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. See you on the other side, everybody. 
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Jigoku from 1960, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. And Ben, I realized that we spent all of the first half talking about hell. Mm -hmm. And I didn't ask you at all, like, do you believe in hell? Do you believe in the afterlife? No, not at all. No. Yeah, I am am a very firmly atheist person. Mm. It's why ghosts bother me so much, because I don't believe in them. Isn't that the opposite? Like, if you don't believe in them, then they shouldn't bother you? No. So I've talked about this before. The reason why ghosts bother me, the reason why I'm afraid of ghosts is because I don't believe in them. Uh, So they evoke this really, really strong sense of the um, uncanny to Mm. me because it's like, oh, that's a thing that shouldn't be. That ain't right. Yeah. I see. Like, I feel like if I just assumed ghosts were real and were a part of the world and had, like, rules and and things around them, it would be like, oh, yeah, that's a ghost. We're going to need to do these things to get rid of it, like as if you had mold in your house or something. (laughs) For myself, um, I choose to believe that when you die, you die Mm -hmm. and there's nothing. But I wouldn't call myself an atheist. Mm. You have a spirituality about you, which I do not. Hmm. Is that like a pickup line? Like you have no. a spirituality no, about that you. Was just a okay. <laughs> so what did you think of this movie, Sarah? I don't think I liked it. Oh, interesting. Um, I respect it. Interesting. And I think it's a very good horror movie. But I think part of why I don't like it is because its philosophy is so at odds with mine. Interesting. But um, I mean, like it was fine. It was like it was good. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna dig into it then yeah this, did gonna, you like it oh i i saw this movie like in university i think i, I haven't seen that. it i haven't seen it since then um, i did, i thought this was your first time uh and <laughs> i i do like this movie okay um i liked it more the second time like i liked it more this time than the first time i saw it because you've seen all of the other horror movies no because i've seen it like jigoku before so i know I knew where everything was going Uh, and I also could like pick up on things earlier that pay off later that you don't really know watching it are things that are going to pay off that you should be paying attention to. Yeah. Cause the movie throws like a lot of different characters and a lot of different things at it. And if you've been given it this reputation as this big game changing movie, um, I think that if you're not into weird abstract expressionist theatrical cinema like i am uh you could find like the first two-thirds of this movie like very challenging because you're like you know when are we going to get to the fireworks factory right (laughs) and i think having seen it already let me enjoy the earlier parts more that's fair um yeah this movie is definitely (laughs) i'm i don't mean this derogatorily uh, it's an art movie. Mm. There's there's not a lot that happens, and yet everything happens. It's a slow burn. Yeah. That's a hell joke. 
Okay, well, let me tell the story. Yeah, for sure. So this is a synopsis. If you want to experience the movie, go watch the movie. Yeah, I don't think a synopsis is going to get the movie across well. Yeah, at the end of the day, a bunch of people caught up in the web of their own selfishness and sins end up all dying as a result of those things and taking some people down with them, and then they all go through hell, and you get to watch it. But let me expand upon you that one a sentence. Little, a little bit more specific? Okay, cool. I'm just setting the tone, you sure. know? Sure, yeah. Uh, so we mainly follow a student who's named Shiro. We see he gets engaged to his sweetheart, Yukiko, um, but during the announcement with her parents, they get interrupted by Shiro's friend, Tamura, who basically calls Yukiko's dad, Mr. Yajima, out on killing a fellow soldier during a war. Yeah, presumably what we call World War II. I think specifically we're more like in the Japanese wars of expansion kind of period, but yeah. So when Tamura leaves, Shiro goes with him. And Shiro's giving directions and directs him in this one road. And on this road, they accidentally run over this guy who turns out to be a Yakuza, the head of a local gang. Um, Tamura is like, I don't have any responsibility. You're the one who told me to go down this road. His death is on you. And Shiro is like really racked with guilt. He really sees them both as murderers. Now the Yakuza guy's mom saw the license plate and uh, she and the Yakuza's girlfriend, Yoko, plan to hunt down this guy's killers. His name is not important. That's why I'm skimming over it. Oh, Kyoichi. Yeah, it's not important. <laughs> there are so many characters in this movie, and I'm trying to like... Yeah, keep it moving. Yeah. I understand. Now, like I said, Tamara has no guilt, but Shiro sure does. So he plans to go to the police. But first he tells Yukiko, completely derailing her planned conversation to tell him that she's pregnant he's like okay let's take a taxi to the police station and she's like well maybe we should walk and continue the conversation he's like no i just want to get into a taxi and we'll just get there fast they get into a taxi and it crashes killing her and the taxi driver uh but shiro's fine cue more guilt cue more guilt because shiro's like man if i hadn't like insisted on the taxi it's basically like i killed her myself with Yukiko's death, her mom kind of goes off the deep end due to grief. And Shiro is basically like wallowing in guilt and misery. Um, so he heads to a bar and happens to meet Yoko. The next morning, <laughs> um, Yoko sees his wallet and realizes it's one of the guys involved in her boyfriend's death. But before she and the Yakuza's mom can enact their revenge, Shiro gets called back home to like some village uh because his mom is dying so he gets there and he finds that uh his dad has a mistress and she's living in the house and they're fucking next to his mom's bedroom that's great also uh they have a neighbor who is a painter who has a daughter named sachiko who looks eerily like yukiko there's a whole other few characters there's everyone's a, bad and awful yeah there's a big cast of characters in this village who are all terrible selfish people who are all screwing each other over in some way or another 
um, Shiro's dad runs an old folks home and everyone is like sick because of like poor food nutrition. So Shiro tries to care for his mom. Um, and during this time, he kind of gets a little closer to Sachiko. His dad's mistress tries to hit on him, which he indulges in. But then his mom dies. And Shiro's past kind of catches up with him because Tamura arrives in town and Yoko has as well with the Yakuza's mom. Now, timelines get a little wonky here because uh, everything kind of seems to happen all at once. But Shiro's mom has died. Doesn't matter because it's like the 10th anniversary of this old folks home and we're having a big party. So we're having a big party. Uh, as part of that, Shiro's dad buys bad fish from a fisherman who knows that they're dead when he catches them. Everyone's laughing about it. They feed these rancid fish to the old folks. Later on, they die. It's like airplane if everybody died. If everybody died. The afternoon before the party, Shiro goes to meet Yoko on a rope bridge. On the bridge from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, basically. She confronts him. He's like, oh, fuck. She pulls a gun. And then she slips and falls off the bridge. And he's like, oh, God, it's basically like I murdered her. Then Tamura shows up and she was like, this is all your fault. They fight. The gun goes off and Tamura dies and falls off the bridge. And she was like, man, this is a bit more like I murdered him. It's a bit more active, but it's still yet another murder to my name. It's it's like some ridiculously cartoonish, like everyone who goes to talk to Shiro slips on a banana peel and dies kind of stuff. It is comical. He goes home. It's that big party. Uh, his dad's mistress finds him and hits on him and they end up fucking Shiro's dad finds them. They have a, a fight and a run around the three of them around the storage room, leading to the mistress falling down the stairs and dying. Oh, it's almost like I murdered her. Because Shiro's mom died, uh, Yukiko's mom and dad came to like grieve with him. And that's how we see that Yukiko's mom has gone off the deep end. She kind of freaks out when she sees Sachiko. But they're leaving. They're like, okay, you know, we'll leave you be. They jump in front of a train because their lives are over. Wow, it's almost like I murdered them. Remember that Yakuza's mom? Well, she comes by with sake at the end of the night. That is definitely poisoned. Everyone drinks. Everyone dies. Shiro, however, doesn't die from the poison. He dies from being choked out by the Yakuza's mom. Remember Sachiko? Uh, she dies um, in a weird thing. <coughs> so this climax gets confusing because Tamura shows up despite being dead. Yes. And he shoots at Shiro and hits Sachiko instead. Yep. Sachiko dies. Yep. I think Shiro also gets shot and then he gets choked out by the mom. Yep. And then we also see that... So Chico's dad has hung himself after completing the painting of hell, which he has started to burn in the house where everyone else is dead. Yep. So long story short, everyone is awful. Everyone dies and goes to hell. Now we get to follow mainly Shiro through hell 
as he meets the various people that he has fucked over. He begs for forgiveness every time. The first person he meets is Yukiko, who says, yeah, I was pregnant and I had the baby here on the side of the river in hell and put her on a lotus leaf. Her name's Harumi. She's floating down the river. Go after her. So that's kind of what's driving Shiro as he goes through hell. We get to see a lot of people get like punished for the sins that they had. And at this point, listener, you might be wondering, like, what was Yukiko's sin? Uh, well, she fucked before marriage, I guess. And what is Sachiko's sin? Well, she really liked Shiro, and Shiro really liked her. And then Shiro's mom's spirit comes up and is like, hey, actually, y- y'all are brother-sister. Yeah, because earlier in the movie, they set up that the painter had like a fling with Shiro's mom when they were all younger that he feels guilty about now. And so it turns out that they're siblings. So that's her sin. She didn't fucking know. This is what I mean with like, there are parts of this movie that are like very at odds with my philosophy, I'm, I'm, which is why I'm like... I don't know if I really like this movie. We're going to have an interesting conversation. Yeah, like, that's fine. That's totally (laughs) fine. I still, like I said, Uh I respect this movie, and I think it was very well done. Ultimately, the film ends with Shiro. So every so often you hear, um, like, the Lord of Hell bellowing, like, this here's the place where you get to wallow and shit and Mm -hmm. all this. And he calls out to Shiro saying, if you can save your daughter off this, like, wheel thing... You'll save her and she won't have to stay in hell. So he's struggling to do this. We cut to a scene of seeing everyone in the house dead and seeing that, you know, how everyone's fates have ended on Earth. Then we cut to, seemingly, Shiro has saved the daughter because Yukiko, Sachiko, and presumably Harumi are going to heaven. Okay, so I have some corrections to make on some of your plot summary yeah hell yeah but before we get into that the last section of the movie that's set in hell which is kind of like the bit everyone's here for Mm -hmm. right um the reason you didn't synopsize that like more completely is because it's very like dream association kind of in structure like we just kind of go from one thing to another and so on, seeing everyone's punishment. But literally everyone from the movie is here. Like the Yajimis are here because they committed suicide. Tamura's here. Um, everyone's here. <clears throat> and basically all of those punishments that Sarah talked about at the top of the show, like we basically see all of that kind of stuff. So Which was cool. Yes. So I wanted to like, there's there's not really a point to like listing off all of them. But I wanted to ask if you had any like particular favorites. Like, what were the highlights of the gruesome hell torments? I liked seeing the black thread sawing thing mm-hmm. because when reading about that particular realm, uh, it just seemed like visually really interesting to me. And you can't not mention the flaying of the skin. Yes, where I literally was like, "Holy shit!" Mm-hmm. Because their, their skin gets pulled off and and you see like a still beating heart in it's clearly props it's clearly props they didn't actually like use a cadaver or anything 
but it's very well done. Yeah. It is shocking. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It's, it's Shiro's dad lying on the ground with like his skeleton, but then there's all of his organs still inside. And like you said, the still beating heart and stuff. And it's like, and his head is there and his head is like the actor. Like, yeah. So he's like yelling and screaming. Yeah. It's, it's wild. And definitely like it was a level of gore that, like that level of gore is something I associate with like the eighties. Yeah. Like with like, I don't know if this is quite right, but like RoboCop levels of gore, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, even into the seventies. Yeah. And that's like a full, cause this is mid 1960. Yeah. This isn't even really in the sixties. Yeah. So yeah. this is like at, like at least a decade and a half ahead of its time. Like this is season one of Mad Men territory. You know what I mean? <laughs> Can you imagine Don Draper going to see Jingoku? Oh, God, that would be great. What was your most memorable thing from Jigoku? It's the flayed skin thing. Yeah, yeah. it's absolutely the flayed skin thing. I do really like the black thread sawing thing. That's really good. Um, but it's absolutely the flayed skin mm-hmm. thing. So the corrections I'll make to your plot synopsis are, are very small. And one of them is a question. But um, <laughs> so he does not rescue Harumi. Um, He is meant to be on that wheel forever. And the thing about that wheel is like, he can rescue her by just like moving on it, but he doesn't. He's like on one part on this spinning wheel, like hanging on for dear life. And Harumi's kind of on the opposite part of the spinning wheel. So she's always moving away from him, but he's like not actually moving at all. And then the freeze frame happens and we're just left with that image. And at least in my opinion, I guess, I interpret that as like he's stuck in like a Sisyphean Tantalus style thing where he can never get to her. Mm -hmm. And it is a cute baby. It's a cute, chunky (laughs) baby. Uh, And that's his torment. Mm -hmm. So because of that, that that's the ending and that he never rescues her, because we don't actually see her when we see Sachiko and Yukiko at the end, like one of them's not holding the baby. Yeah. Um, so I don't think he rescues her because of that. And because that's his torment, I kind of doubt that Harumi's actually in hell to begin with. Mm-hmm. I think she's a torment, um, a spirit used to torment him. Um, and by that same token, I don't think Yukiko and Shichiko are in hell either. I think the versions of them we see in hell are again, things there to torment Shiro specifically. And that's why the movie explicitly shows us after showing us all the dead people that those two go to heaven because they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, So part of my challenges with this movie is that art film thing of just like showing rather than telling when Mm. it's like, Clearly, maybe some kind of telling would have been helpful here. Mm. Um, But yeah, no, I think your interpretation makes sense. Yeah, that's kind of my interpretation of just like the film language that's going on here. So I think that sort of alleviates your problem with like the women being punished for bullshit things. The other thing about this movie that gets talked about a lot and debated a lot, and I found it really interesting, this is debated a ton by Western critics and not really by Japanese critics, which is 
why does Shiro go to hell? Because the movie kind of goes out of its way to be like, he's not really responsible for any of these deaths. They all just kind of happen around him. And yes, he feels guilty for them, but is feeling guilty the same thing as like actually being guilty and what's up with that. And a big part of that is what's up with Tamura, this like friend he has yeah. who leads him down this, like who, who is the one doing most of the crimes. Um, Throughout the movie, it's like, is he a devil or is he a regular guy? Yeah. He appears out of nowhere a lot. And usually with like weird lighting or some like strange, like rose that he throws down or like whatever, <laughs> he kind of acts like a weird Yakuza guy. He talks to Shiro about how like he doesn't have a conscience and all these things, but the other characters react like he's in the room too. Like, it's not like he's someone only Shiro can see. Yeah. Um, but then it's like that confusing thing of like, well, if he fell off the bridge, how is he suddenly in the room? And if he's suddenly in the room as a dead person, doesn't that suggest that because there are moments where Shiro like sees him and then he's not there, like as if he's imagining Tamura. It's also implied that Tamura causes the car accident that leads to Yukiko's death because he told Shiro, don't go to the cops and he's going to the cops. Yes. And the taxi driver turns into Tamura for a frame. Yeah, that's what I mean for yeah. the implication. But then, like, as you said, he actually, like, is the one who kills Shichiko with a gun. So it's like, what is going on here? And there's so much ink in the Western critical reviews of this movie spilled over, like, who is Tamura and why is Shiro being punished for Tamura's crimes? And, like, is he a demon? If he's a demon of hell who led him down the wrong path, why do we see Tamura getting punished for his crimes in hell. Like, what is going on here? So I think it's really obvious. Um, but I wanted to hear what your thoughts on Tamura were first. So this didn't come across in my plot synopsis because I was trying to just get the plot. Yeah, out. for sure. But the film opens in hell. So I am kind of always, I'm a slut for uh, unreliable narrator stories. For sure. Um, and so I really heavily suspect that that's a bit of what's going on here because that's why it's like, oh, I didn't actually murder them. Um, when mm, this level of death, I think you <laughs> had something like you could have gone to the cops still, even after yeah. Yukiko's death, like yeah. just painting himself as so, um, sympathetic. Uh, and it also helps explain what the heck is going on with Tamura. That's a semi-answer to your question. Otherwise, uh, I would just say Tamura is just like maybe a representation of his like bad deeds. I don't know. Yeah, you basically got it. Like the first time I saw this movie, I thought it was super obvious that like Tamura is Shiro. They're the same dude in a fight clubby kind of way, but not literally in a fight clubby kind of way where it's a multiple personality thing. It's just like, the shitty things we see Tamura do are shitty things that Shiro has done as if he has like externalized his bad self to make it take blame. Right. Well, it's also like the best way to convey in a visual language that little thought in the back of your head of like, what if I don't stop to check on the guy who I just ran over? Yeah, exactly. Like Tamura is Shiro's guilt. Um, so I thought that was really clear the first time I watched the movie and I basically interpreted anything that Tamura does as something that Shiro did. 
I kept reading like all these Western essays that are like, what's the deal with Tamura? And then I found an interview with the writer of Jigoku where he says, a really unimaginative director would have cast the same actor as Shiro and Tamura because they're the same guy. That would have been very confusing. So I think it would have been confusing. I also think it would have ruined the movie because it would have made it like I think not knowing what Tamura's deal is is part of the mystique and intrigue of the early parts of the movie yeah. that keep you kind of interested through all this melodrama to get to the hell part. But I do think it's interesting that the writer was like, yeah, an unimaginative director would have cast the same actor. And so Nobuo Nakagawa didn't do that, but he did cast the same actress as Yukiko and Sachiko, which is like, who aren't supposed to literally be the same person, right? Yeah, I... That has like very much like cast the same actress as Oiwa and her sister vibes to me. Yeah, same same deal. I, I interpreted it in a few different ways as a callback to those kind of traditional Kaiden ghost stories. And also it adds a little bit to the fucked upness. <laughs> yeah, and I think... Because it's like in hindsight, then you realize that therefore Shiro fell in love with someone who looks exactly like his sister, even though he had never met his sister and didn't know her. It brings on this stuff of like, well, were you only ever attracted to Shichiko because she looks like Yukiko? Um, yeah, and it helps the voice in the back of your head that tells you that Shiro is not a good person either, despite yeah. the story going out of its way to make him innocent of everything, right? Yeah. And the fact that he believes so strongly he's a bad person, even though the story is going out of his way to make him innocent, I think is the other thing that makes you go like, okay, what's really going on here, right? Yeah. I bring up those elements, like the correction about the two women and the explanation of Shiro and Tamura, because I thought maybe that would help you with your objections to the movies like moral philosophy because i think that sort of changes how you read it a little bit i think that unfortunately the movie uh this is going to sound really harsh okay and i don't mean it in a harsh <laughs> way okay visionary directors need limits and walls sometimes hmm. and Nakagawa is showing, I think, that he needs a bit more structure hmm. to fully convey what is going on here. Hmm. Um, because everything is just a little bit too loosey-goosey hmm. for it to fully congeal into something that makes sense. Hmm. The reason why I'm, I think that it sounds harsh is because I think it's totally fair to have an artistic decision made that I want the audience to work a bit. Yeah. And the last 40 minutes being all hell, I found it go on a bit too long. Oh, interesting. But also, that's kind of the fucking point. Right. Right? It Hell is for, well, not an eternity, uh, but for a really fucking long time. What I really liked was this detail of like, before the, right before the hell sequence, we see the clocks all stop. Yeah. And then we go and we do the hell sequence for 40 minutes. And then when we come back to Earth, like the clock's on the same time as if to say like all of that happened in like one minute of time on Earth or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the point. I I just felt like, I don't know. I, I kind of get you like it goes on too long and you were getting frustrated with the abstractness of it all. Well, like 
it's also just kind of the same mm. at a certain point. Um, cause like the last, I don't know. I felt like the last 10 minutes was just Shiro yelling, Harumi screaming, screaming, Harumi Shiro mm-hmm. screaming, screaming, Harumi Shiro. Oh, you're not wrong. <laughs> and it's just like, and that's also right when like, we're really focused on this one realm where everyone is kind of like walking and running in a spiral. Mm-hmm. And like, I understand like that there's visual tying of that and then like him being on the wheel with Harumi, but it was just like too much for too long. I needed Mm. something to change. I needed something different. It was just like starting to grate on my nerves. And I was thinking about this because like him calling out Harumi just was going on for so long. And I was sitting there thinking like, why is this so fucking annoying and yet in the Trilogy of Life movies. Right, by Pablo Pasolini. Yeah, the last one where dude's running around going like, Shahrazad, Shahrazad. Right. It's fucking hilarious. Right. Like, why was that hitting different when it's still the same, like, calling and running around and then calling and running around? And I think it was because it was... Um, in Jigoku, it's trying to be the climax. And so it's like a cacophony all rising. And as much as I respect that, I just, it was a lot. And I really didn't enjoy that. I can totally empathize with that. And I totally get where you're coming from. I do disagree because I'm on the side of the fence where I like that the movie makes you work for it. I like that this is a movie that you have to think about and you can kind of come away from and sit with for a while. And I think that level of ambiguity is what helps the movie feel, I guess, philosophically deep versus feeling like, I don't know, like a Jack Chick comic where it's just like some Christian thing being like, do good or go to hell. Um, (laughs) Why is that sounding like Bane? (laughs) Um, You know, like, like, so I liked being able to, the fact that you have to think about it and I get what you're saying. And I totally agree with your comment about like directors need limits sometimes. I think Nekagawa had limits and they were his budget. And I think he got over that brilliantly. Yeah. There's no denying that he is clearly ambitious here. And I think he achieves his vision. I think that the use of color, the editing effects, the makeup, the acting, like all of that is good. There's nothing negative or critical I can say about those things. Like, I think that, it is accurate to call this his masterpiece. I do agree with you that the like screaming for Harumi thing goes on too long. Like I agree with you. It just doesn't tank the movie for me because I am recognizing like this is kind of part of the, like this is agony to watch on purpose Yes, because we need to get across the idea before that freeze frame. And we go do the other things. I think the movie's trying to get across the idea of like, he's stuck like this forever without literally needing the movie to go on forever. Right. Yeah. The budget didn't allow for that much, uh, film. Right. But I do think that like, I can see what your problem is kind of with the movie's morality, even though like, I do think that the explanations I gave sort of mitigated a little bit, but ultimately like it comes back to that discussion of like, is not giving up the board 
on the water for the other guy murder, right? Which I think gets most literalized in, we find out that like Professor Yajima's tragic backstory is that like he took the water from a canteen when him and a fellow soldier were like dying of dehydration. Yeah, that was another really interesting visual because that flashback gets shown and like recreated in hell and everyone is trying to crawl towards this one puddle of water and it was just a very evocative visual mm-hmm. um let's take that example of yajima is yajima a murderer mm-hmm. because he drank water rather than and like fought with um let's presume like a fellow soldier so yeah. on the same side um yeah they use the word comrade so yeah yeah He fought him for that water rather than letting him have it and dying himself. And this could be a, like a cultural thing um, for me versus a Japanese person in 1960. And a Japanese Buddhist specifically, right? Yeah. But for me, selfishness is not inherently immoral. And I think in the case of Yajima, that's survivor's guilt. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really reckless to throw around examples of survivor's guilt and say you're a murderer yeah because someone who has survivor's guilt is already struggling with a lot of negative things yeah absolutely so i, mean, I they kill themselves in the movie right like, <laughs> yeah so like yeah yeah i that that's part of it and and that's just like a microcosm with it but um when it's just like shiro being like oh man, I'm guilty that we didn't go to the cops. Let's go to the cops. Oh man, my girlfriend died. I'm like, I, I'm a murderer. It's like, no, you aren't my guy. Obviously, as the movie goes on, you start to question like, as as we've talked about with the role of Tamara, but like, I don't think you're a murderer if you take that plank of wood. Yeah, and I think that cultural difference is like something where I totally think it is like exactly like a Japanese Buddhist cultural difference thing, because I think the movie is taking the point of view that selfishness is inherently immoral um, or inherently evil. However you want to like phrase that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that is a distinction for some people. And I think that like, that's the movie's argument. Like the movie's argument is like the, the correct thing to do would have been to say like, Hey, you have the water and die for someone, right? The correct thing to do is to split the water, Sure, my guys. Sure, sure. Um, But assuming that's not possible. Sure. um, For me, I think this is also hit on a bit of a core philosophy mm. for me. Um, Being raised by basically a single mom, Mm -hmm. my mom was always like, you take care of yourself so you can take care of others. Yeah. And it's not, like some people would see that as selfishness. Like if it's the case of like, it's not like mom didn't feed us so she could eat everything herself, but it's like, if she can't do something, she can't help her children. Right. So it's not immoral for her to do something that would potentially be seen as selfish because it means that she is then able to take care of her children. Yeah. Whereas like, there's kind of a certain point of view that would be like, well, if there's only enough food for like one person, the mother should give it up for their children kind of thing. Right. And yeah, I think that is like a fundamental difference of philosophy. Totally. Between you and this movie. Yeah. And for me, I'm more on your side than the movie's side on that issue. But I have always been a big fan. Like, I think one of the reasons I like this movie a lot is I'm a big fan of like 
weird abstract dream logic movies that you have to put together yourself. And I'm also always a big fan of movies that get across a specific defined philosophy, regardless of whether I agree with that philosophy or not. Like Mm -hmm. I, I really admire movies that get across a point of view because so many movies try to be everything for everybody and to avoid getting across a point of view as much as possible because that might alienate some people in the audience, like how this movie alienated you. And so I think for me, even though I disagree with that, I'm like respectful of the fact like this movie has a point of view and it is getting it across. Right. Yeah. I think also I really bristle at nihilism. Yeah, that's fair. And this is a very nihilistic movie. Yeah. Like the reason why I bristle at it is like, I think it's so overwhelmingly simple to just be like, well, everyone sucks. Right. So who gives a fuck? Yeah. Uh, And I think it's much more challenging and hopeful to look for the good. Instead. Totally, totally. And I don't think this movie is completely against that. I'm just trying to like explain my point of view to help with like c- compare contrast. Oh, absolutely. This movie, because everyone, except for the two ladies, yeah. everyone is awful and it's just taken as read that. This is just how people are, right? Yeah. Is the movie's point of view. And like, it reminds me, I forget the name of the philosopher who was like, uh, life is like brutish and short. Right. Nasty, brutish and short. I think that's Hobbes. Yeah. I always get Hobbes and Locke mixed up. Oh, maybe you're right. Maybe that is Locke. I, it it but doesn't yeah. matter. No. But I really am like, I remember reading that in, in university and being like, fuck this. <laughs> I feel like it's something that's probably more true when you're living in like medieval plague times. But Absolutely. But like, so... I totally agree with you. Like in principle, on a philosophical level, I am on your side, which is probably good since we're married. (laughs) But on the other hand, what I will say is that nihilism works well for the horror genre. Nothing matters. Everyone sucks. You're going to suffer. Fuck you is an effective philosophy for horror. But what I like... Okay, so side note, listeners, mm. Ben, um, Ben's friend, Cody, came over and they watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I didn't watch it because it, it's, a, it's a lot, uh, and I, I just didn't feel like watching it. Would you say that that movie is nihilistic? Because what I love about that movie is the joyful ending mm. on a few people's parts, and I find it so interesting the dissonance between that hopeful ending of like oh god i've i the joy and panic of survival Mm. compared to the rest of the movie having no hope so i i don't think i would describe texas chainsaw massacre as nihilistic the word i would describe texas chainsaw massacre with is bitter Mm. that's a movie that's really angry at the world that it exists in and so to come back to jigoku when I talked about like the generational divide yeah, and how like older people didn't like the nihilism and younger people liked the nihilism. So Nakagawa was, would have been like 55 when he made this. The generational divide that I'm talking about isn't like old people and adults. Yeah. It's adults and teens. Mm -hmm. So like the people who didn't like the nihilism here were the generation that lived through world war two. 
and like the people who had to pick up and rebuild after World War II, the people who came of age and were adults in the 50s during the occupation and stuff. Because they took offense at this idea that like everyone's shitty, nothing matters, you're all going to hell. Because if they had taken that view after the war, Japan would not have been able to rebuild, right? If you took this view and like, you know, rebuild reconstruction after the war was really difficult for both Japan and Germany because they had to reckon with their country's sins in a way that like Japan is still having a hard time with today. And, um, that generation is the generation that fully supported the like, yeah, let's not have a military. Right. And fully support the like, yeah, let's never do nuclear weapons. Like let's never do this stuff. And the generation that found Jigoku's nihilism attractive were the teenagers who would have been people born after the war. Yeah. Who came of age with those people struggling to rebuild as their parents. And so for whom this idea that like everything's going to get better, we're going to get out of this, they are rebelling against that idea. And especially this feeling of like by 1960 where it's like Japan is on the verge of like a really wild economic turnaround, right? Mm -hmm. um, with its westernization. Um, and that's that's something else about this movie is like, this movie is so religious. Like not in a way that I think a Westerner like jumps <laughs> on. It's not like, you know, cause it's not Christianity, but like there's like a traditionalism to this movie. Yeah. Um, I also noticed that. And I, I also noticed the generational gap that you described with like the response to the movie is reflected in the generations that we see on screen. Yeah. Like we have the students, we have adults, we have older people, right? Um, the movie's kind of roughly divided into like three acts. Yeah. Right. There's basically the like sort of abstract set bound Tokyo of the beginning. Then you've kind of got the like location shooting rail line village in the middle. And then we've got the, the hell descent at the end. Right. And the like return to the rural life reminded me of stuff we've seen with Ghibli movies. Yeah. As like, well. um, uh, only yesterday, only yesterday, but even my neighbor Totoro. Sure. It's, it's interesting how like, and I think this is probably mostly a production reality thing than like a purposeful stylistic thing but the way that like tokyo is shot like the way hell is shot but then when we go to like the old village like we're on location and we look like we're in the real world um he still does try to do stylistic things oh yeah like the the it, whole setup where like the mistress and his dad have a room next door to where he is watching his mom die, which is a room next door to where the painter is getting drunk and like Sachiko's there or whatever is very like, that's a play. It's yes. very theatrical. Right. Which I think is like a good segue into kind of moving away from maybe talking about the philosophy of the film sure, to just yeah. talking about the movie and to say that this movie is gorgeous, quite frankly. Yeah, the way everything is constructed is very, very well done. Um, as I said earlier, like there is no um, constructive criticism I could offer. <laughs> um, like, absolutely, this movie is doing amazing things. Yeah, I really love the 
abstract Tokyo at the start. I really love the location shooting in the middle. I really love the fucking insane hell imagery at the end. The cinematography, the mise-en-scene, and the production design are all like consistently remarkable all the way through the movie. The way that the color palette shifts throughout, the way that Tamura like has the color palette of hell like early on. The most important thing that I think the abstract style does in the early part of the movie when we're in Tokyo is establish a certain tone to the movie that I think helps with how you're going to interpret the story, which is to say that like the abstracty, this is a play kind of feel with like Tamura appearing out of nowhere and like the swaths of blackness and light and so on tells you this is a fable. Yes. This is a morality tale. This is theatrical, like a stage play. You shouldn't take the visuals too literally, which I think really helps when you're trying to figure out what's up throughout the story, right? And like the, the Tamura mystery and things like that. I do think there's so much that we could talk about forever about the visuals because there's so much visual symbolism going on throughout. I want to take two seconds to talk about the opening credits. Yeah. Uh, ladies it's like a james bond opening right it's like undressed ladies in the credits and the thing that makes it interesting is we get sound effects over these undressed sexy babes it's like undressed sexy babes and jazz music which like yeah gives it that james bond feel but like the title comes on and it's like jigoku and it's in blood and whatever and then we get these sexy women and you're like okay maybe it's like a temptation lust hell thing and that kind of comes up later in the movie. But the most interesting part of those opening credits for me is that there's like war movie sound effects at one point. Yeah. And there's a guy saying like, ready, starto, like, and you hear a clapboard of like a movie set action director kind of thing. And what I get out of that, and maybe this is a little too reading into things, is like, those are the visuals of Shintoho's like etchy sex comedy, like nudie cutie movies. And we have the sound effects of like their like cheap war action movies. And we have these sounds of like calling action and like on set. And it's like Nabua Nakagawa is saying working at Shintoho has been hell. <laughs> I think if he made the opening sequence after Shintoho was like, hey, we're going bankrupt. Yeah. I can see that being mm -hmm. the case. But I think more it ties in with that fable and the construction of a story mm. um, and making you question, like, not even who is the narrator, like, who is telling the story? I did find it really interesting when, like, the movie starts with this song about, like, this is a tale of things not of this world. Yeah. And we're on the river in hell, right? And then once we get into hell in the story, that song comes back and the people in hell are singing it. Right? Yeah, that's what I mean with, like, the movie starts in hell. Yeah, and, like, who's the narrator, right? Is it yeah. these people in hell? There's also something interesting of thinking about, like, a movie starting with a clapboard sound as almost, like, the same way that, like, films like um, An Actor's Revenge or whatever would start with, like, the traditional sounds of, like, a um, kabuki play to say, like, that's how the story starts. And it's like, well, this is a movie, so the story starts with, like, the clapboard and, like, action, Yeah, you know? Uh, which is really interesting. The identification of this as a fable, uh, I think, means that 
that's a good segue to talk about the fact that I think, I think in a classical sense, this story genre is really to me more like classic tragedy. Like it's got a strong, like tragic play feel to me or, or maybe like parable. Yeah. I think that's like the, the true genre going on here, um, which is reflected in the fact that like the hell stuff is only the last third. Right. But I think the hell stuff is what everyone remembers. And I think ultimately the movie was like produced and promoted and reviewed as a horror movie and it's hugely influential on the horror genre. So I think we got to rank it as a horror movie, even though to me, the story structure actually feels like a much older kind of story. Like it feels much more like this older kind of like see the errors of your ways parable story. That does not preclude it from being horror. Sure. For the I guess, I guess being scared straight is still a version of being scared. (laughs) Absolutely. And it sounds like you are leaning into ranking. And so let me just go out and say, uh, this is 1960s Phantom Carriage. Yes. Oh, totally it is. Totally, 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 totally. If Phantom Carriage is a slog, as we often describe it as, this is an amusement ride you can't get off. Yeah, totally. I I totally agree with you here. Um, I do want to say that in the genre of scared straight stories... One thing that I think is really unique about this movie is that like usually in these kinds of stories after the big long, here's what hell is like motherfucker sequence, the lead character usually awakes to find out that was a dream. Yeah. David Holm awakes and he's like, oh no, I'm going to be a good person and keep my tuberculosis to myself. Right. And like, I'll keep Christmas in my heart all the days of the year. And, but yeah, like totally like these movies are here where we see the lead character go through a change that inspires them to change their ways. And that is just like, not what Jugoku's about. Like Shiro is dead he is everyone is dead they are sentenced to torment that's why it's a parable yeah and not a uh an angel coming to you to scare you straight yeah the moral instruction here if there is any because maybe it's just hey life sucks but um the moral instruction is to the audience not to the characters in the story right yeah and i think that's also why hell goes on too long hmm because yes, he's trying to be like guys. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think, think about these things. And that's and that ultimately is like why it's a horror movie because yeah. it's it's not about like the audience is to be horrified by these things, right? Um, but it is just like I think if you're a traditional horror fan, like you gotta know that like no no no, no like it's worth it's worth the ride like getting through all of this soap opera stuff. Before we get onto ranking, I do want to say one thing because I the visuals in this movie have influenced so many things that have come afterwards. And you hear so much about its influence on later horror movies. And I just, you know, I was thinking about that when I was watching the movie, I was trying to think like, okay, what in here feels influential to me. Right. And the pre hell visuals, like especially in the village really strongly remind me of what Paul Schrader would do in Mishima with scenes that are supposed to be depicting scenes from the plays that Mishima had written, like the stuff where it's all this blackness around and all the sets are very artificial. The hell visuals themselves, a lot of imagery in that section really strongly resembled in my eyes, 
the kind of inner world of psychological torment that Shinji brings upon himself in like the final episodes of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Like the shots of like him in blackness lit by like one square of light, um, the like odd camera angles. I like, yeah, just the, like a lot of it just felt like that imagery from the end of Ava. I would not be surprised if there was a connection there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even if... just like for the ethos. Yeah. Yeah. If Hideki Anno like saw this movie. Yeah. I would not be surprised. I just wanted to see if like I was, I was off base or if you were like, no, that. No, I see it. Okay, cool. Yeah, let's uh, let's rank this. I'm worried that I my range is too high. <laughs> so I called out Sher Carlin, Phantom Carriage. That it goes all the way back to episode nine. Oh wow, that's so many episodes <laughs> ago. It's ranked at number thirteen. Also to remind folks, Tokaido Yatsura Kaiden, uh, Nakagawa's last movie, is ranked at number 12. Like one spot above. One spot above. I have a spot picked out, Ben. I have a range. Okay, you go first. Okay, so like you, I thought of Shokarlan. So I went and looked where Shokarlan is on the list. And like you, I discovered it was one spot below Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden and was like, wow, that's interesting. I guess I right away have to decide both is this better or worse than Shokarlan and is this better or worse than Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden? And I didn't make that decision at all. I created a range that basically sweeps up from there and down from there. Okay. Sweeping up from there, I was struggling because of the fact that I was like, well... Is this really a horror movie, though? This is clearly a grand achievement in the art of cinema, but is it more of a fable? And therefore, like, how does it rank against movies that are more directly trying to scare me? But also, it's a really good movie, and maybe that means that it should go above stuff like The Old Dark House. And I kept kind of finding my way up the list, and I finally said kind of the spot where this is a good movie got outweighed by but maybe there's better horror uh was basically at peeping tom where i was like okay i'm not sure if i can go much farther above this so that was my ceiling and then looking below yatsia kaiden and phantom carriage um you know there's also still like a lot of really good stuff island of lost souls is a really good hell is other people metaphor thing um, Black Cat is really strong. So I was like, okay, where do I start feeling like how good this movie is outweighs the horror elements of other movies? Uh, kind of the reverse of when I went up. And like Picture of Dorian Gray is really strong at hitting the same themes as this movie. Isle of the Dead, as I already called out. And then I hit like Quatermass Experiment at number 21. And I was like, yeah, that's a fun movie, but it's no Jigoku. And so that's my, my kind of range. That was ending up being my floor. So 5 to 21 is my range here. That's a very large range for you. Mm. Usually you're, you're a little bit um, more confined. Yeah. And I think it was just the difficulty of like how the first two acts, how the movie takes a long time to get where it's going. Mm. Because it opens in hell, I don't think i agree with it takes a long time to get to where it's going sure um my spot was determined by yatsua kaiden 
and Sher Carlin. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I would probably rather watch this again than Sher Carlin, because at least I-, I may be strapped on both, but at least one is an amusement ride and one is a slog. Yeah, so, totally, totally. Uh, both and- movies want you to feel bad, but like Sher Carlin, like wants you to feel bad <laughs> yeah whereas jigoku like there are moments where i was laughing at the ridiculousness of jigoku it. you can you were supposed to feel bad but you can also if you're this kind of person take the perverse glee in seeing these shitty people get wrecked yes whereas in shakarlan um it's only the people around david holm who get wrecked who yeah. don't deserve it and are innocent people yeah, this is a revenge story taken to the extreme. Right. And the audience are the people who get to revel in the revenge. Yeah. Rather than um, like someone on screen, like Thomas Jane wrecking the mobs. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. As I said earlier, I think Nakagawa could have done with a bit more narrative walls or mm. structure. Mm. Yatsuwa Kaiden is a great example of him pushing the boundaries and experimenting and stuff while also still being stuck with a structure that he has to hit. And I think that's also why yeah, this Yatsuwa Kaiden is the best one. Yeah, it's also like 90 minutes long. And I think at one point we even looked into it, and I don't know if it is the shortest Yatsuwa Kaiden we had watched up to that point, but I think maybe it was. And It, it was probably like, is. And it like was super surprising because it was like, well, they got all the story in uh, without being two and a half hours long or whatever. Whereas, yeah, this is definitely a, like, for a horror movie from 1960, this is a long movie. Like yeah, I not, think it's like an hour 40. Yeah, like, not in general is it long, but for this kind of movie. And I think what's interesting about the lack of structure here is it's not coming from the usual place where this happens to directors, which is like, oh, Yatsia Kaiden was such a big hit that we're just going to give you free reign. It's more like... Well, the bosses are over with the lawyers talking about the bankruptcy. Nobody's like, like mods are asleep post Jigoku. Like, <laughs> like it's kind of more the vibe. It's just like, I can get away with anything. Yeah. And just as George Lucas really benefited from a fantastic editor, mm. I think uh, Nakagawa would have had, uh, not to like slam the editor of Jigoku, I think they did a really good job, but I think they could have made things a little tighter mm. to make it not so long. Mm. Um, so I thought, okay, slot this in below Yatsir Kaiden and above Sharkarlin. Yeah, I think I remain personally unsure of whether this is better or worse than Yatsir Kaiden because part of me am like admires the ambitiousness of this so much. And the fact that like, yeah, he's not just telling another 18th century Japanese ghost story. And he's also not like doing like a universal studios monster riff. Like he's not doing any of the trends in the genre at all. Like he is doing something new. And like, I admire that a lot, but because I am unsure of whether this is better or worse, and you are sure, like, your spot is within my range, and therefore I think, yeah, I, I will go with you on this, and we will put this right between the two movies it is most like, uh, <laughs> at the new number 13. Lucky number for our 300th episode. Yes. Uh, so at the new number 13 goes Jigoku from 1960, directed by Nobuo Nakagawa. Unfortunately the last film we're going to see from Nakagawa. 
which I think I think sucks. Like I think I would have really liked to have seen like where he could have gone post this if he had like support rather than not. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, I, I I don't know if anyone would say this, but I think there would be a concern of like, well, this movie is too Japanese to capture the art world of the West. Uh, totally. But if you look at Kurosawa's shit, all of that's super Japanese. But it's also kind of Western, which is yeah. why like Kurosawa gets like kind of a bum rap in Japan sometimes because they're like, well, he appears, he appeals to Westerners. So yeah. meh. Yeah, because it's like Macbeth, but with samurai. Yeah. Right? Like, it, it's, you know, kind of bridging the two, whereas, like, Nakagawa Jigoku is very much Japanese, and as you said, very much traditional yeah. Japanese. But he, he can, especially at the end, when there are moments where, like, people are speaking in English, it has a moment of, like, I'm over here! <laughs> if you would like to see this list of... Uh, all of the movies that we have watched so far, you can head to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr or reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help us out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcast app of your choice. You can tell a friend about the show, uh, share the show on social media. We always really appreciate when we see those shares uh, on various social media platforms. And you can uh, help support us financially if you really like what we do here. Kick us a few dollars over on patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular cool bonus content. October is coming up, so we got to figure out what the special shit is that we're going to do because we always do extra special shit for Halloween. Um so if you're interested in seeing the backlog of all that cool stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week for episode 301? The hits keep coming, Sarah. Ooh. We are back to William Castle and his film 13 Ghosts. Oh, so I was a young teen when the remake mm. came out and I was like, oh, I don't know. That that looks scary. And my older sister was like, no, we're going to watch it. She's <laughs> also the one who had me watch Fight Club way too young. Um, and I, I, I got, the, I think there's a scene in a landfill and I got so fucking scared. I, I couldn't look at anything for a while. Uh, that's my knowledge and experience of 13 Ghosts. The original movie is much more Carnival Funhouse, uh, Haunted House Ride kind of vibes. It, it's a little spoopy. Uh, but it is a classic. It's it's one of his better movies, and I'm so excited to just see, like, what William Castle is doing in the same year that like Hitchcock is doing Psycho, and Corman is doing House of Usher, and Nakagawa is doing Jigoku, and you know all of these cool things. So, uh, yeah, join us next week for William Castle's Thirteen Ghosts. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.